Good morning. I guess here we are once again. We're um, on what about part five of uh, these episodes of uh, YouTube uh, streaming our sermons. Not exactly what any of us would desire, I suppose, but that's where we currently find ourselves at this time. So that's what we'll do again today. As we all know, this is the second Sunday of May, and it is Mother's Day, as we know it. I've seen uh, quite a number of Mother's Days come and go in my time, and I think it's appropriate that we have uh, a day that we celebrate as Mother's Day. This very unique role of being a mother is uh, belongs only to the, the side of the human race that has the double X chromosome, and um, they are a very vital part of our society, and uh, they're u- unique and unreplaceable characteristics are something that we could not do without as a human race. Unfortunately, today, with many people wandering down the road of humanism, humanistic reasoning, uh, we have come to a point of disillusionment where we have decided we can we can divide the realities of sex and gender, with sex being what is supposedly the um, DNA makeup of uh, who you are, whether you are male or female, and with the gender being supposedly fluid. You can decide whether you are a male or a female. And uh, this is unfortunate because... Um, As we all know, um, that would be somewhat the same as me deciding that I'm 10 years old because I just have decided that that's the case and I'm going to identify as a 10-year-old does not make me 10. And likewise, just because a person decides to, to identify as the gender opposite of what his DNA says it is does not make him a person of the opposite gender. And it is unfortunate that we have reached a place in our society where that is not understood as it should be. And that's not a, that's not a um, transphobic statement to make. It is reality. And um, I think it is appropriate to state our position on that occasionally because um, as time draws to an end, we're going to see more and more of this disillusioned way of thinking become normal. But that's somewhat a, of an aside as we, um, as we go into this, this uh, talk on, on um, Mother's Day. I'm happy to say we don't have to be confused on this issue, and um, we certainly are not, I do not believe. There's been an observation made by someone that, it's, this person made this observation that on Mother's Day, it seems that the sermons that are preached are generally sermons of reflection and appreciation and um, somewhat of a reflection on, on the good attributes of uh, motherhood and, uh, and an exhortation to the audience to appreciate their mothers. And um, he noted that whenever Father's Day rolls around. It's more of a sober exhortation for men to stand up and be men and uh, to take their place as fathers and leaders 
and the tone is one more of warning and gravity rather than reflection and appreciation. And I thought of that, and there may be some truth to that, and maybe it's uh, maybe it's even appropriate. I'm not sure. But um, be that as it may, I'm not sure what category this talk will fall into. But I would like to read out of the book of 1 Timothy for um, today's message. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm going to start at verse 9 and read to the end of the chapter. In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith, in charity, in holiness, with sobriety. I'd like to title this message, Notwithstanding, She Shall Be Saved in Childbearing. I don't know how many of you have read over this passage and... Um, and have reflected upon it. And when you hit verse 15, you maybe scratched your head and said, what does it mean, this phrase, notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing? Just exactly how is a woman saved by having children? It's, it's like one of those phrases you kind of read and you go, hmm. And then you move on and you, you kind of forget about it again. Well, today I'd like to unpack perhaps what could be meant by this particular phrase as, as it's Mother's Day. And as we all know, childbearing is only done by the one gender, and that's our mothers. Well, if we back up and we look at the verses we read, Paul is making a, um, a few statements here, a few instructions on proper Christian propriety for godly women. Verse 9 says, in like manner... Women should adorn themselves in modest apparel and so on. So what Paul is basically saying is here, he's calling for practical modesty, specifically in the area of apparel. And I think this for a variety of reasons. I think, first of all, there's a testimony that can, be, can go with that, a very real testimony that people can see that this person identifies as with godliness. I think it's also a way that a Christian woman can show that she understands who God is and is willing not to usurp any attention away from God and draw to herself, but rather she wants to make sure God gets the glory, and so thus she arrays herself, she dresses herself in a godly way. Also, I think godly dress, godly apparel is the Christian woman's first line of defense against ungodly and sinful actions of evil men. And I don't think we have to belabor those statements very very much. I think they are very self-explanatory. And then he says in verse 10, he says, But which becometh women professing godliness with good works? Or in other words, to put that in maybe more common language, he's saying, let your manner of life make sense with your profession of godliness. If you profess to be godly, 
then act like it. That's, that's what he's saying. Make sure it makes sense. And then he gets onto this thing about women learning to be silent with all subjection. And he gives a couple of reasons that, um, that he believes that this should be the case. He points to uh, the creation order. He says that Adam was created first and then Eve. So in other words, man was created first, then woman, and God had a plan. He said that the woman was made to help man, not vice versa. Although, it's not like men neglect women or, or treat them like slaves, but there is a role there that they play, and the woman is the help meet for the man. And then he also points to the transgression. He said, the woman was deceived and not the man. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, Adam, he was deceived as well. Well, he was, but let's think through this. Why did the serpent go to Eve when it was time for him to uh, try out his wiles on the human race? Why did he not approach Adam? Adam was in the garden too, somewhere. Apparently, they were separated that day. Why did the snake go to Eve and not Adam? Well, if you think through this a little bit, I would suggest that just the mere makeup of a woman, um, the serpent knew that she would be more easily deceived and his tactics would be um, more, um, what would I say, he, he would have more success and his tactics if he approached the woman. I think the serpent knew it would be a bit harder for the man. And there it goes back, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but it goes back to the very idea that a woman is more emotional, a man more objective. Now, that's not that men have no emotions and women never think objectively, but as a rule of thumb, those things kind of rise to the surface whenever there's a decision-making process taking place. Is it the emotions that are going to rule, or is it going to be the um, just more objective, thoughtful thinking. And that's in no way any slam to, to women or any elevation of man. It's just the way God made us. However, I think it's all, also noteworthy that Adam fell because Eve approached him and talked him into it. And now we have, you know, a brief verse or two about this whole episode, but I'm I'm tempted to think there was maybe more to that conversation than what's maybe recorded. And I think there's some things that can be learned, and we're going to just talk about one here. I think it clearly shows that a woman can exude powerful influence over a man with her feminine ways. And a person can't help but think of the example of Samson and Delilah. If... Uh, if Delilah would not have worn down Samson the way she did with her, I believe, feminine ways, coaxed him into finally telling her how he had his power, uh, I don't think Samson would have fell the way he did. But I think that's a prime example of how um, a man can be led down by, uh, by the wiles of a woman. And this can work in two ways. This can work in a very positive way. In these two illustrations, it worked in a negative way. But I, I bring that out to just show you how that this is the point Paul is making. All right. And then he's then he goes on to verse 15 and he says, notwithstanding, the woman shall be saved in childbearing 
If they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. What does that now mean? Well, I believe the primary meaning of this goes back to, again, the garden that we just talked about. And when the curses were pronounced upon the woman and upon the serpent, you'll remember how that to the serpent, God said that he would bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman, but the woman's offspring would bruise his head. And the curse of the woman was that during childbearing, it would be a painful and unpleasant process. And I think we, we know, we, as we look through history, we can easily see that Jesus and his triumph over Satan, whenever he was crucified and he rose again, was the crushing of the head of Satan. Although Satan did take a blow at Jesus' heel whenever he crucified the Lord of glory. So, the role that the woman played into bringing the Savior to the human race cannot be understated. You think through this, the male side of the human race had nothing to do with bringing the Savior into the world. Because Jesus was conceived, it says, of the Holy Spirit, and Mary was the mother of Jesus. So, we had this almost unexplainable combination of human and God, and we may as well admit it, we as men, our, our side of the human race had uh, nothing, no part to play in that. It was the Holy Spirit, and it was the woman. And so in a very real way, the woman was saved through childbearing, through eventually Mary bearing this child, Jesus, the human race had the opportunity to be saved. And we praise God for that. But on this Mother's Day, I would like to explore a few other principles that I think are implied in this verse. Maybe not specifically stated, but I think they're implied. So I have five things I'd like to just briefly uh, work through uh, as we explore this a bit. So number one, childbearing, which is a result, which will result in motherhood, is a noble and high calling and certainly implied in this verse is the primary calling for a woman. So, at the creation and after the flood, we have two very similar commands that God gives the human race. And that is that they should be fruitful and that they should multiply. Now, we all understand what that means. And that is, he's, he's commanding the humans to get busy and populate the world. In other words, have families. This is, this is God's intention for the human race. He talks about children in Psalm 127. The Lord talks about children as a heritage of the Lord and as the fruit of the womb as something called a reward. We also see on the counterpart of that in Genesis 30, when Rachel could have no children, she says she went to Jacob. She said, give me children lest I die. She was so overcome with this thing of being childless that she said, I may as well die. If I can't have children, I may as well die. This just suffice to say that the scriptures are overwhelmingly clear that a woman with children is a blessed person. And a woman who was called to be childless for whatever reason was depicted as somebody that would be willing to do just about anything 
to reverse that and obtain the status of mother. In Psalm 31, the psalmist says that a godly woman's children will arise and call her blessed. Is there anything that could be more honorable to a Christian woman than to have her children rise and call her blessed? So today we honor you, moms, for your high and your honorable calling. We support you. We thank you for your sacrificial life that is too often unnoticed. You know, today's feminine feminist movement has made an entire generation, probably several generations by now, believe that to be just a stay-at-home mom, quote, quote, just a stay-at-home mom is a very low and undesirable existence. And that those who have embraced being just a mom over a career is something that should be pitied. But I tell you, a career as a mom is a rich reward. And I, I encourage you always to embrace this. Number two, children are indeed a blessing and indeed in their own way can be a little s savior. Okay, a savior with a little s, not Jesus, not nothing to do with saving our souls here. But I want you to just think through this a little bit. As far as this thing of being saved through childbearing, would there be any application to anything other than a savior of one's soul? I think there is. As we noticed, the Bible uses the word multiply whenever it talks about the human race, whenever the command is given that they should be fruitful, it says and multiply. So at the very least, the implication is that there would be at least several children in a family. I ran across some statistics in my studies that intrigued me. In the year 1800, the average American family was eight or nine children. By 1900, this had fallen to 4.7 per family. By the year 2000, it had dropped to 2.4. So basically, we have cut the number in America. The American family has has divided itself every hundred years for the last several hundred years. So we're down to 2.4 in the year 2000. And I did some quick research, and I'm not sure if this number is completely correct, but we're somewhere south of two today. And a, and a society needs 2.1 children per, I guess you'd say woman, to sustain the society. And I think we're somewhere under two. I, my my research would indicate maybe we're at around 1.8 or so. So there's a question we have to ask ourselves. In this time period, from 1800 to 2020, has America gotten more godly or less godly? Have children become more cultured or less cultured? More well-behaved or less well-behaved? Better cared for or less cared for? As the family size has shrunk. Have parents become more fulfilled? Has God been more honored? And then we have to ask the question to ourselves. Has America's mindset and thinking on children rubbed off on God's people? These are legitimate questions that we have to ask ourselves. And I realize that this is an intensely personal subject. And I am not intending in any way to set a number or to insinuate or suggest that there's some sort of a goal here 
uh, in family in matters of family size or anything like that, or to put anybody on a guilt trip. And I realize every couple, every family, every mom, every dad is unique, and these things um, are subjects in and of themselves. However, I would like us to carefully consider, especially young couples. We have several young couples in our church that are expecting children here in the next while. Let's just consider what God's will would be for us as we uh, as we have families. And let's realize the blessing that children are. Let's also remember that childlessness is always viewed negatively. And the fact that many in today's society are choosing childlessness as the way to go is not godly. That is not godly thinking at all. And I hope and pray that that type of thinking is not rubbing off on us. But now there's a second part to this. Going back to the point that children are a blessing and a savior with a little s. I'd like you to think, just think through this with me for a little bit. The Bible says in the Psalms that a man that has his quiver full is happy. It doesn't give a number. It just says when his, if, when he, if he has a quiver full of children, He's a happy man. Now, why is that? Well, let's think through this a little bit. The godly paradigm in a family that God has set up is that children are born into the world, and as infants, as toddlers, as adolescents, and even into teenage years, that the the parents take care of the children. We understand that. Children gradually gain their independence, but they're responsible The the parents are responsible for the children. But as the children grow up into adulthood and the parents age, at some point those roles flip. And the children now become responsible for the parents to look after them in their older years until they uh, pass off the scenes of life. So in this this thing of, in this um, realm of time, when a couple is having children, just by sheer, just the way it is, the more children that a person has, the more diversity will be in that family. So one child will have this talent and this personality and these abilities, and the next one will be a bit different. And you soon can have a wide array of talents, of personalities, of abilities, and these things can end up making a family quite self-sufficient in many ways, just because they have this whole range of, um, of uh, people in the family. So thus, the parents, and I'm going to say mom today, is at a great advantage. She actually helps herself as she has children. And as the parents age, and statistically, the father usually passes off the scene before the mother, not always, but statistically, the, the man will die before the lady. The lady will end up being a widow for a period of time, sometime in her life. Literally, the, this family will become the mother's um, fortitude in her old age, and it will be, be her savior. She will be saved through childbearing. And I like to think of it in that way. The benefits of having a family become quickly apparent 
in the latter days. I've had the privilege of watching this play out in both my family, my parents' family, and my wife's parents' family. And it's, it's a blessing to me to see the elderly being well cared for by their adult children as they age and then eventually pass off the scene. And so in that way, let me just stress again. A woman is saved through childbearing just by that, by that principle that at some point those children that she raised along with her husband will end up being a huge benefit to her in, in her older years. Point three, godly women will rejoice in their calling. In Psalm 113 verse 9 it says, God makes the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. In that psalm, it's a whole list of blessings that God bestows upon his people. And the last verse says, he makes the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul has this to say. He says, I would therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. To not follow this instruction that Paul gives, Paul is suggesting that the adversary, our adversaries, will have a better opportunity to speak reproachfully about the kingdom of God and, the, uh, and, and what it's doing on this earth. You know, it's once it has been said that when we enjoy what we do, we never work a day in our life. Well, we understand what that means, that it's good to have a career that you enjoy. And so I would like to encourage our mothers here to take an interest and a delight in your calling of a mother and a housekeeper. In the house that Justin and Stephanie live in, the uh, elderly couple that lived there before they inhabited the place, were quite the collectors. And in their collection, they had a number of newspapers and Reader's Digest and so on that they left there. And I was interested in reading these, especially the Reader's Digest. They were from the 1960s. And I just find it very interesting to see what was happening the decade before I was even born. That shows how young I am, I guess. But... Um, um, the thing that I found the most intriguing about these Reader's Digests were the fact that the ads in these Reader's Digests that were geared toward women were largely geared to a woman that was keeping house. It was something to do with something in the kitchen or something to increase her efficiency with her children or something like this. And you so, so rarely, if ever, see an ad like that anymore that I was so interested to see how society actually viewed things in the 1960s, which isn't just that uh, long ago. So I would like to encourage our mothers today to see our housekeeping, to see the guiding of the house as a primary job and to do, and to do it well. A house that is guided well will go a very long way and having well-adjusted and content children that will rise up and someday call you blessed. It very, very seldom works to have a mother that's distracted with other interests. And even sometimes these are worthwhile interests. 
and the house guiding suffers. That usually is not a very good, a very good uh, scenario. And again, I want to bless our mothers here at church, but I don't believe that that's really the case from my observation. I read an article on children that um, have stay-at-home moms versus non-stay-at-home moms. And there's just a few things I'd like to read to you that I found that um, the benefits of having a stay-at-home mom. So the first one is increased school performance. The child does better academically just because his mother is at home. The child had less stress level and he showed less aggressive behavior. Again, remember, just because his mother is at home with him. He had, he had less sickness whenever he was exposed to sickness. In other words, he was actually a child that didn't get sick as often. And probably, I'm guessing, because he isn't exposed to as much sickness in daycare centers and that sort of thing. That would be my guess. And he had less emotional issues to deal with. He was a much more settled person. I just, again, I cannot stress enough. Our mothers cannot underestimate their value and contribution to society whenever they are willing to spend time with their children. Never, ever think your job is not important. It's very important. I had to wonder, what would our society look like if the feminist movement would have never swept the nation uh, numbers of decades ago And today, the norm would be for our mothers in the American society to be at home with their children. My guess is the school violence and all the problems that go with it, the drugs, the alcohol abuse, the the um, there's many, many things that go into this. But the disruption of the family unit and the fact that mothers are not at home with their children, I believe there's a direct connection to that in the ills that we are facing as a society. In fact, I know there is. There absolutely is. I'm sure that there would be um, um, much data that could support that statement. Number four, motherhood is indeed a unique role. And there's other unique aspects that go with that role. And I draw that from just simply the fact that it says that a woman should be saved through childbearing. Again, there's only one side of the sexes that can bear children, and that's the woman. So that's a unique role, and, um, and, and one that should be valued. Let's go back to what I was saying before. The woman is more of an emotionally driven person The man is more of a person that is driven by reason and objectivity. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's the way God made us, and that's not something we should resent or we should make a big deal about. It's just simply stating facts as they are. And there's a very good reason that a family should have both of these. There's a good reason that God designed the man to be the head, and there's a good reason that he designed the woman to be that help meet for him. And then he said, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. He really does need this woman. The two together is a good unit. However, there is a clear biblical injunction that whenever the woman and the man in a family unit have a decision that needs to be made, and for whatever reason, there's not agreement. 
that the man ultimately makes the call. It's not like he ignores what the wife has to say, but ultimately the Bible says he makes the call. He makes the decision. And that's a peaceful way to do it. That's God's way, and it works. Recently, I was talking to a person that um, made this observation about a couple that both of us knew. And he said, he said, I don't know if you know it or not, but she wears the pants around there. And I did know that. I, I, had, I had observed that. And I'll tell you, there's many, many, many women that do wear the pants. And we all know what that, what that um, um, terminology means. It means that there's a role reversal. The woman is the leader and the man is the follower. And it's not a good thing. It's not doing society any good. It's not doing marriages good. And it's a sad thing. And I, I again, the reason I'm bringing this up is because this verse today suggests that you as a mom have a unique role. We need your emotional input. There's nothing more than your um, wonderful motherly ways that we so much need. And we want you to perform that well. There's a reason that when a, uh, a young child is hurting and wants comfort, that he will generally run to his mother and not his father. His father has a place, but his mother's going to fill that place better. And so embrace your role. Now, that's not to say that there's not going to be differences in um, from couple to couple and from family unit to family unit. I remember as a, uh, as a young man, we had a, um, a feed uh, nutritionist that worked for my dad for many years. And I well remember him saying a couple of times that he was, uh, he was so poor with books and with finances that he just brought the, the checks home to his, his wife and his wife took care of all the finances and would just give him $40 every, every, uh, every week that he could call his own. And he said that this was just a wonderful arrangement. And there was nothing wrong with that. They were both agreed to that and that's what worked for them. Other households, is going to be completely different. There's going to be somewhat of a blurring of lines in certain things. But let's never remember what the proper order of things are. And I guess that's the point I'd like to make in this. Embrace, each of us need to embrace our own unique roles willingly and joyfully. All right, the last phrase I would like to um, look at here, last point. There's a conditional phrase in this verse, and I'm going to read it. So the first part of the verse says, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. Now here's the conditional phrase. If they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now I think we need, it is noteworthy that these conditions that are listed here, are all to do with spiritual virtues. It does not say if she continue in great organizational skills and thriftiness and great culinary accomplishments. That doesn't say that. Although those things are wonderful things, thriftiness, organization, great cook, you can't argue with those qualities, but that's not what it says. Now I think... When I read through this verse and thought through it, my mind immediately went to Mary and Martha. And we, under, we remember that story how Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to Jesus, conversing with Jesus. And Martha's getting supper ready. 
And after a while, Martha got agitated with Mary for not helping her with supper. And he called on Jesus to rebuke Martha or Mary for her laziness. And it's always interesting to me that Jesus rebuke. He didn't rebuke Martha for making supper. He just said, Martha, your priorities are a little bit mixed up. Mary has chosen the better part. Your part is good, but Mary has chosen the better part. And I think that's what this verse is saying. As you find your role as a mother, and as you find that as as a uh, fulfilling role in your calling, if if you're satisfied just to be a good cook, and a thrifty person, a person that can pinch those pennies and you can, you know, you can buy everything just right. You're a good seamstress and you're good at organizing and you got all that down. But you're lacking in things like faith and holiness and sobriety. You got the things mixed up. You've got the cart before the horse. I believe that mothers that spend copious amounts of time with their children are going to be the winners in the end. You know, that's the nature of things. Moms spend a lot of time with with children because, again, the nature of the thing is dad is out earning the living. He's just not as available through the day as, as mother is. And so mother, by just by the nature of things, is going to end up having more time with the children. And so by default... Mom has to be an example and a teacher of spiritual values, spiritual virtues, and spiritual qualities of life. Not that dad shouldn't be, but mom will have the opportunity to instill these things into that toddler, maybe more often than the dad will. I had to think of this verse in 2 Timothy when Paul is talking to Timothy here again. He says, and that from a child, thou, or as from a child, Timothy, he's talking to Timothy, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, And I am persuaded is in you also. It just stands out to me that we don't know the status, the complete status of Timothy's father and grandfather. We have some indication that perhaps they weren't Christians. But it was because of spiritual mothers, mother I should say, a spiritual mother and a grandmother in Timothy's life, that Timothy became this powerful man of God that we know in the Bible. His spiritual depth and his soundness was much affected by his mom and his grandma. I also find it interesting that in First and Second Kings, as one reads through those two books, as the kings move onto the scene and off to the scene, And another king will rise up, move on the scene and off the scene. When the king is introduced at the beginning of a chapter, when it says, and King Asa or whoever rose to power and he ruled so many years, it will always say who his mother was. It will say, and his mother was this person. Now, for you and me as readers, some of those women we know something about, many of them we don't. 
But I would suspect that in the era when these books were written, people did know who these people were. And I believe the reason the mother is mentioned is because the success of that king could have possibly, or the the unsuccess of the king, perhaps, many of them weren't successful, many of them were ungodly and so on. The dichotomy or the direction of that king, I should say spiritually, I believe hung, um, at least some weight was given to the mother, at least some. And I think to the reader of that day, they could say, oh, that's why that king turned out the way he did. He had this person for his mother. And we know that woman. And perhaps that woman either was or was not a godly person. It's a little bit of conjecture, but for some reason it seems that it's important to the writer of the kings there to point out who the mothers were of these particular kings. There's the old saying that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. It's an old saying, we've all heard it. But what it's saying is that all great men had a mother. And most likely, the greatness of that person can be largely contributed to his mother. And his mother is the one that's largely unknown. I had to think of um, Susanna Wesley. Again, this is a very well-known person. We talk about her sometimes. She's the mother of Charles Wesley, John Wesley. And she's known as the mother of Methodism. But wasn't that John Wesley, Charles Wesley, that um, eventually founded the Methodist Church? Well, that's true. But when one reads of their lives, of their family life, their father, for various reasons, some good, maybe not some not so good, he was somewhat absent in these children's lives, at least at least in parts of the time as the children were growing up. And it's not like Susanna had a <clears throat> had a very happy life. She had 19 children. Nine of these died in infancy, and one was accidentally smothered by a maid. But the children she was left with, at least two of them, grew into be very, very uh, well-known, um, upbuilding Christians and men of God, due from the unbelievable stamina and Christian character of their mom. So what's the application? Well, through a mother's diligent, godly service, potentially great obstacles can be overcome and children can become great men and women of God. And through childbearing, again, through being a mom, it ends up being a way, an avenue that many can be saved through godly people that she brings to this earth as a mother. You know, <clears throat> as I thought of the sad state of affairs in our country today and how many abortions are, are committed year after year, and I don't have the number in front of me, but it's way, way, way too many. And it's, uh, it's a horrific, uh, unbelievable crime that gets committed in, uh, in the name of women's rights in this country. And it's, it's too bad. It's, it's, it's unbelievable and it's too bad. And a person can't help but ask, how many of those children that have met their death before they even lived 
could have went on to be great people. The next Albert Einstein, perhaps. Who knows? Who knows what could have happened? The next great Christian. The next great writer. Who knows? I mean, I know those, those, that's complete conjecture. But my point is that snuffing out of life is the snuffing out of very great potential, perhaps. And that's a very sad thing. So I'd like to conclude with this. The proverb writer asked this question in Proverbs 31, I believe it is. Who can find a virtuous woman? And then he goes on to say her price or her worth is far above rubies. And we read over that verse and, and we, we get the gist of the verse. Basically, the verse is saying, if you find a godly, virtuous woman, hang on to her because she is unbelievably precious. Well, just how precious is a ruby? Well, I didn't know that, so I decided I'd look that up too. And here's what I found. The most precious ruby stones in this world today are worth roughly $1 million per carat. Well, again, now you're talking a term I don't know what it is. So how much is a carat? Well, here's how much a carat is. A carat is worth .00044 pounds. All right, just an unbelievable, unbelievable, minuscule amount of weight. It's, it, I could hardly even imagine such a small amount of weight. But there are some rubies that weigh that much, one carat, and they're worth a million bucks. And the proverb writer says that a virtuous woman is worth more than, far more than rubies, it says. Her price is far above rubies. Well, let's, let's just think through that. The name Bill Gates is a name that we come by. We know what that means. Very wealthy man, uh, the, the founder of Microsoft, and his name has been in the news lately. He has some ideas about COVID that are perhaps even a bit concerning. But um, anyway, we know this man is a wealthy man. And uh, according to the statistics that I found, he's worth just shy of $100 billion dollars. Now, we, we bat these numbers around millions, billions, trillions, and, you know, we can maybe imagine a million. But when we get to a billion, we're like, yeah, you know, you add three zeros, et cetera, you know, a trillion, you do it again. But I don't think our minds grasp the reality of what a billion dollars is, let alone a hundred billion dollars. So just to put this in perspective, I did a little bit of math. So if the day you were born, you began to work, which is impossible, but if you did, if, the, if you on your first day on this earth, you could begin to work, and you would work till you were 70 years old, the, the three score and 10 that the Bible talks about, and you would die. All right, let's just say you lived a normal 70-year life. And in that lifespan, you would go about to, to um, accumulate a hundred billion dollars. If I did my math correctly, you would have to earn four million dollars a day for 70 years to accumulate a hundred billion dollars. And now just for perspective, our national debt is in the trillions. So, you know, how you get your arms around those kinds of numbers beyond me. 
But let's get back to our point. Is your mother worth $100 billion? I tell you what, I wouldn't give mine up for $100 billion. And I hope you wouldn't either. So bottom line, never, never, never underestimate the worth of a godly mom. I've had the unfortunate um, circumstance or the unfortunate happenings of sitting with men recently whose wives have walked out. They were not virtuous women and they wrecked their family. They wrecked their husbands. And these people would give their right hand to have a virtuous woman. They really would. And here we sit as men, as children today, and we know something about that. We know what a virtuous mom is. And if you haven't thanked God for your mother lately, take the time to do that. We are blessed beyond what we deserve and beyond what we know for having such godly mothers in our midst. And so again, I want to bless you mothers, even though I can't see you physically here today. I want to bless you for the role you fill in your families, in our church, and in society. And never, ever underestimate your role as a mom. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you at the pause. And as we reflect on the blessing we have of having godly women, godly mothers, godly sisters, and um, and just the the women that you have placed around us that are the epitome of godliness. Lord, we thank you so much for that, and we realize that we we don't even understand the blessing that we have. So, Lord, I pray a blessing on our moms. We thank you for them. I just ask that you would um, you would uh, sustain them as they do their their uh, daily work and as they are a contributor to our society. So, Lord, I just pray you would bless us and um, make us a blessing as we continue to serve you. We ask this in your name.